Did you survive the budget cuts? Draconian cuts. During the last debt ceiling fight, Democrats condemned. Cuts that are so severe, they will hurt farmers and ranchers, kids and families. And Republicans praised what they called reductions. It has historic reductions in spending. But both parties conned us. What they call cuts were just a reduction in their already planned spending increase. Leave it to politicians to call a 3.9% increase a cut. We're cutting spending and bringing the deficits down at the same time. No. They aren't. And now they're using tricks to spend even more. Call it an emergency. Done. Spend the money on whatever you want. Budget specialist Ramina Bacha reports that the Senate's moving to increase spending beyond their agreed-upon caps simply by calling it emergency spending. They gave $296 million to NASA for emergency infrastructure. I mean, what's emergency infrastructure? That's not really a thing. It's just a way to plus up the NASA budget. They just call it an emergency and break the rule. Yes, and this is the problem. It's basically a huge slush fund. The DEA gets another $300 million for emergency salaries. How do they justify this? They don't even try anymore, John. Unfortunately, Congress has complete discretion over what it calls emergency spending. Some of the cuts we agreed to will be painful. This trick isn't new. After Congress forced President Obama to cut spending, they just labeled things like salmon fisheries and expansion of train service emergency funding. I don't think that's an emergency. It's not sudden. It's not urgent. Back then, I was worried about the politicians spending. Three plus trillion dollars. But now they spend twice that. Six trillion dollars. The agriculture department's up 27 percent. HHS, 46%. Interior, 89%. The Department of Education, which ought to be eliminated, is up 300%. By the end of this decade, spending will be at about $10 trillion. Who will be willing to lend that money to the U.S. government? That's the big problem. Fitch Ratings has downgraded the U.S. government's top credit rating. Downgrading U.S. long-term credit. At some point... The lenders will just say, no, this is a bad investment, and things collapse. The rating agencies and investors are catching on that the federal budget is highly unsustainable. People like you and me, too, have been screaming about this for years. And it's like we're crying wolf because nothing terrible has happened. The fact that it hasn't happened yet does not mean that it will not happen. It has to happen based on the math. That's the problem. The math does not work out. Pensions continue to be the best retirement vehicle because they provide the security workers need. Pensions, like Social Security, are the biggest problem. Governments promise seniors much more than governments will have. Unfunded pension programs aren't sustainable. But when anyone proposes cuts, people get very upset. Thousands of people taking to the streets after French President Emmanuel Macron forced through an unpopular bill that raises the retirement age from 62 to 64 years old. No wonder American politicians avoid even discussing cuts. No politician wants to do that because all most of them care about is getting reelected. Asking members of Congress who are running for office to reform old age entitlement programs is a bit like asking an astronaut in space to turn off his oxygen supply. So the Cato Institute suggests Congress create an independent commission that will do the cutting instead. That way, politicians can say, don't blame me. The commission made the cuts. 
America once did that to close some military bases. No base is exempt. The Base Realignment and Closure Commission in the 80s and 90s worked very well in helping Congress close obsolete military bases. The commission was given that power because even though the military wanted to close some bases, Congress refused. Members fought any closure in their state. In the middle of a war, you don't close a base like Groton. Circumstances at our base are unique. By ignoring the self-serving politicians, the commission got 350 bases closed. This commission is not a rubber stamp. It was quite successful until Congress turned it off. Since Congress won't cut anything, and the president definitely won't. We and you are going to spend, we're going to spend $1.2 trillion over 10 years. That'll help bankrupt us. An independent commission may be our only hope. We need to do something before the debt blows up and gives us a real crisis. I know, I've warned about the debt explosion for years, and so far there's been no disaster except inflation. But you can only stretch your rubber band so far, eventually it will break. Is your life being wrecked by the super-rich? The super-rich, who are they and what are they doing to us? What are they doing to us? Whatever it is, people say that just the fact that the rich have so much is itself immoral. Immoral and wrong that the top one-tenth of one percent in this country own almost as much wealth as the bottom 90 percent. Is that a moral outcome in and no, of itself? It's no, um, it's not. And they want to condemn the people that actually have moved civilization forward. Yaron Brook of the Ayn Rand Institute's annoyed that today's democratic socialists say rich people got rich by taking money from others. In fact, they actually improved the standard of living for everybody on the planet. How is that possible? How could it improve everyone's living standard? Isn't there a fixed amount of money in the world so when rich people grab a lot, there's less for everyone else? No, because wealth can be created. We have basically made about $2 a day for 100,000 years. In other words, we could eat what we, what we farmed, and that was it. And then something amazing happened about 250 years ago. A few countries tried capitalism. For the first time, people were allowed to profit from private property. That changed everything. Division of labor let people produce more with less, and then they traded to get even more. Wealth increased with every innovation. Cargo transported by ship used to be stored in barrels, in sacks, in wooden crates, and offloaded by hand. Economist Don Boudreau points out that enormous wealth was even created by the invention of the shipping container. With it came a wave of specialized technology that dramatically increased the productivity of shipping. Workers today are superhuman compared to their brethren of yesteryear. We went from carrying bags on our backs to lifting the equivalent of two school buses with mere flicks of our wrists. Most of this innovation began just 250 years ago. 250 years ago, we suddenly discovered the value of individual freedom. We suddenly discovered the value of leaving individuals free to think to innovate, to produce, without asking for permission, without getting the state to sign off on it. 
And we call that the Industrial Revolution. Industrialists, the people who owned the factories, employed hundreds, sometimes thousands of people. And they made enormous profits. And how does that benefit your fellow man? And ever since, politicians have complained about those profits. In Ayn Rand's novel, Atlas Shrugged, state officials demand that industrialists explain how they're getting rich helped others. I do not owe you an answer, but I could tell you in a hundred ways. Thousands of jobs, billions in revenue, fueling our economy despite your efforts. Hank Reardon was right. Capitalism created new wealth. We got much, much, much richer. And it's hard to imagine how much richer we got. Of electricity, of running water, the things we all take for granted today, but we didn't have 150 years ago. And yes, some people complain about inequality, but everybody got richer. Even the poor got richer. In the past several hundred years, we've gone from a society where people hoped to get jobs that required long hours of hard manual labor to one where almost everyone has what they need to live and more people have leisure time to do things like watch movies. You're a wizard, Harry. I mentioned Harry Potter because Brooke bought lots of Harry Potter books, but he says he's not poorer for it. J.K. Rollins became a billionaire and I got poorer by thousands of dollars. And yet, nobody really thinks of themselves as poorer for having read Harry Potter. It made my kids happy. How much is that worth? So I'm actually better off for having spent those many dollars on those books. Under capitalism, that applies to every transaction because capitalism, unlike socialism, is voluntary. Like a pretzel. We see this every time we buy something. The seller's there for his own self-interest. And so am I. So why do we both say thank, thank you? Thank you. Thank you. Because he wanted the dollar more than he wanted the pretzel. I wanted the pretzel more than the dollar. The transaction doesn't happen unless both of us think we win. And that way, voluntary transactions create wealth. Thank you. Thank you. Since the Industrial Revolution, we have more than doubled our life expectancy. We have dramatically increased the quality of our life and we are wealthier than anybody could have imagined. Made possible by private property and capitalism, which people hate. People don't like it because, you know, it takes real responsibility over your own life to, to achieve something. And unfortunately, our educational system has taught us that since we don't sacrifice enough, because we're, we're basically too self-interested to sacrifice enough, the state must now intervene and force us to sacrifice for our fellow man. And that belief that sacrificing for others is more moral is what gives socialism strength. It's not so tough to share your stuff. Every priest, every philosopher, every mother has taught us that to be selfless is good. Selfless is good. No mother actually means that, right? She, no mother actually wants you to be last in line. They all want you to be first in line. but. They tell you that because they think that's what nobility is. But the people who do for others are not more moral because they're wasting the one life that they have. Lots of us see morality as helping other people. If your house burned down, neighbors in America have always helped their neighbors. What? Nice I and thought you people. objectivists didn't approve of that. Ayn Rand was never against charity. What she said was that that was not the major virtue in life and that you should voluntarily have a choice about who you help and who you don't. The key is that somebody else's need is not a moral claim against your life. 
Your life is yours. Today, socialists say self-absorbed Americans won't help the poor and the sick. That's why government must force everyone to give. Otherwise, the weak and the poor will suffer and die. But indeed, the weak and the poor under capitalism has done better than in any other system. It's a fantastic system that is fundamentally moral because it allows individuals to pursue their own happiness. Your pursuit of your own well-being, which is a virtue in and of itself, also helps the world be a better world. Who will be our next president? Polls say it's a dead heat between President Biden and former President Trump. And the more accurate betting odds say a Biden-Trump rematch is probable. That's odd since most Americans don't like either man. Joe Biden is the second most unpopular president in modern U.S. history. And Donald Trump is even more unpopular than Joe Biden. There's a good reason people don't like them. Trump is mean. You're a nasty person. That guy's got a serious weight problem. He mocks people. Uh, I don't remember. He hires people, then calls them incompetent. He stiffs contractors and often doesn't pay little people who worked for him. And finally, he's just divisive. Radical left lunatics, maniacs, and perverts. But Biden is divisive, too. Running for office, he promised. I will draw on the best of us, not the worst. But now that he's president, he attacks his opponents as... Full of anger, violence, hate, and division. Both Trump and Biden lie to us. Trump lies even about unimportant things, like the crowd at his inauguration, the ratings of his TV show, even about winning a non-existent Man of the Year award. And of course, he lies about big things. We won this election, and we won it by a landslide. But he knows it wasn't a landslide, and reportedly knows he lost. This makes Jim Crow look like Jim Eagle. But Biden's deceitful, too. When Georgia said voters should show an ID, Biden said, This is Jim Crow on, on steroids. He kept repeating that. Jim Crow 2.0. But that's just not fair. Jim Crow stopped black people from voting. After Georgia's law passed, 0% of black voters in Georgia said they had a poor voting experience. Why is it that Joe Biden is the first in his family ever to go to a university? Biden has long lied to advance himself. He wasn't the first in his family to go to college. He plagiarized that line from this British politician. Why am I the first Kinnock in a thousand generations to be able to get to university? Biden's plagiarized again and again. The quality of our education, the joy of their play. The quality of their education for the joy of their play. He lied about his law school performance. Ended up in the top half of my class. Biden now concedes he did not graduate in the top half of his law school class. Joe Biden ranked 76th in a class of 85. Seems like yesterday, the first time I got arrested anyway. Biden lied about being arrested in protests. He was never arrested. Biden also says... I used to drive a tractor trailer. But he never did. This year, one lie caught up with him. For years, Biden refused to admit he has a seventh grandchild until withering media scrutiny made that too embarrassing. The worst thing about both men may be the corruption. Former President Donald Trump indicted again. I don't like political prosecutions, but so much of what Trump does is just sleazy. Paying a porn star hush money, then lying about it. 
refusing to return classified documents and lying about that, pressuring Vice President Pence not to certify electors, and whipping his supporters into a frenzy about it. But Biden's corrupt, too. My son has not made money in terms of this thing about, uh, what are you talking about, China. But in court, his son admitted he made money from China. For years, Biden claimed, I have never discussed with my son or my brother or anyone else anything having to do with their businesses, period. But he was involved with his son's business as his son's business partner. Hunter Biden would get his dad on the phone and there would be business associates or potential business associates, foreign nationals. And it was about sending a, a signal about influence and access and power. Maybe I shouldn't call Biden's lies lies. Well, we're going to win and we're going to help. We have plans to build a railroad from the Pacific all the way across the Indian Ocean. A railroad across an ocean? Maybe Biden isn't lying. Maybe he's just confused. But that's disturbing, too. His age, 80 years old, will certainly be a factor voters will have to take into account. He often shuffles when he walks, and aides worry he will trip on a wire. He stumbles over words during public events. On 60 Minutes recently, he committed America to a possible war. To be clear, sir, U.S. forces, U.S. men and women, would defend Taiwan in the event of a Chinese invasion. Yes. The White House quickly took that back. When the president of the United States wants to announce a policy change, he will do so. He has not done so. But it was the fourth time Biden said that. Is Biden too old to be president? Hey, I'm old too, but I just make these videos. I'm not running for what may be the most demanding job in the world. I am a young, vibrant man. No, he's not young. He's almost Biden's age. But he found the doctor willing to say his health is astonishingly excellent. Mr. Trump, I can state unequivocally, will be the healthiest individual ever elected. Here's that doctor. He now admits. That letter that showed up in the Times about his health, he wrote himself. Give me a break. I'm used to disagreeing with president's policies. But our most likely choices are just embarrassing. Can't we do better? We've been interviewing possible presidential candidates. Is there someone else out there you think we should talk to? Let us know in the comments. And make sure to subscribe and hit the notification bell so you don't miss that video. Climate change is a crisis, we're told. And Anyone who's skeptical or raises any questions about the alarm is dismissed. I'm going to bring out two people who agree with you, climate skeptic. I'm also going to bring out 96 other scientists. <laughs> the smug media mock so-called skeptics. And what is the overwhelming view of the entire scientific community? Well... <laughs> OK, OK. Any response to that? Any response? I, 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 can't, I can't hear you over the weight of scientific evidence. The consensus is so strong, there shouldn't even be a debate. This whole debate should not have happened. I apologize to everyone at home. Climate alarmists claim there's an... Overwhelming scientific consensus. But... It's a manufactured consensus. Researcher Judith Curry says climate scientists have an incentive to exaggerate risk. Why? What's in it for them? Fame and fortune. <laughs> she knows about that because she once spread alarm about climate change. 
And the media loved her when she published this study saying there was an increase in hurricane intensity. We found that the percent of category four and five hurricanes had doubled. Really? Doubled? And so this was picked up by the media. The alarmists said, oh, here's the way to do it. It being, get the public alarmed. Climate change is making hurricanes stronger and more destructive. Tie extreme weather events to global warming. So this hysteria is your fault. Well, sort of. <laughs> Not really. They, they, they would have picked up on it on anyways. But Curry's more intense hurricanes gave them fuel. I was adopted by the environmental advocacy groups and the alarmists, and I was treated like a rock star. What does that mean, treated like a rock oh star? Oh my God, I was flown all over the place to meet with politicians and to give these talks and lots of media attention. But then some researchers pointed out gaps in her research, years with low levels of hurricanes. So like a good scientist, I went in and investigated all that stuff. She realized her critics were right. Part of it was bad data. Part of it is natural climate variability. So you're the unusual researcher who looks at criticism of your paper and actually concluded they had a point. They had a point for sure. Then the ClimateGate scandal taught Curry that many researchers aren't so open-minded. Leaked emails showed university climate scientists conspiring to hide data. It showed a lot of really ugly things. Um, avoiding Freedom of Information Act requests, trying to get journal editors fired from their job. One email read, if you think this Yale professor is in the skeptics camp, get him ousted. Seeing emails like that made Curry realize that climate change fanatics had corrupted the science because there's a climate change industry set up to reward alarmism. The origins go back to the 1980s and the UN Environmental Program some U.N. officials had a specific agenda. Anti-capitalism, they hated the oil companies, and they seized on the climate change issue as one to move their policies along. The U.N. created what's called the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. The IPCC wasn't supposed to focus on any benefits of warming. The IPCC's mandate was to look for dangerous human-caused climate change. Obviously, if you're only looking for risk, that's what you'll find. And then the national funding agencies directed all the funding in the field. If you say we're all going to die and we got to spend a ton of money on this, you get funding. If you say we don't know, you don't get funding? No, it, it's more subtle than that. The announcements of opportunity for funding are really tied to assuming that there are dangerous impacts. So the researchers aren't stupid. They know what they need to say to get funding. Exactly. This is how manufactured consensus happens. Then, even if a skeptic does get funding, it's harder to publish, because journal editors are alarmists. About 10 years ago, the editor of the journal Science, she wrote this political rant about we need to stop emissions now that was published in Science. So what kind of message does that give promote the alarming papers and don't even send the other ones out for review. Getting published is crucial to researchers because that's how they advance in academia. If you wanted to advance in your career, like be at a prestigious university, get a big salary, have big laboratory space, get lots of grant funding, be director of an institute, well, there was clearly one path to go. So alarmist researchers control the discussion. 
They publish lots of scary papers, and alarmist media jump on those. Time magazine says climate is everything. Good Morning America agrees. Climate change is impacting everything from a conception to pregnancy. Transportation congestion, the size of frogs, <laughs> you know, everything. Airplane turbulence. Expect turbulence like this to become more frequent due to climate change. Childhood obesity. Climate change is making our children more obese. Experts say that we have until 2030 to avoid catastrophe. Activists hear the media and freak out. Children are starving. The potential extinction of the human race. Why don't other scientists who recognize the nonsense push back? If they work at a university, it's going to be very uncomfortable for them. Universities have become idiots and they punish people who tell the truth? I mean, I felt the hostility. Curry was a department chair at Georgia Tech until she concluded that fossil fuels aren't so terrible. They want fossil fuels to go away. When they made life uncomfortable for her, she looked for other university jobs, but was told... Nobody will hire you because if you Google Judith Curry, you know, everything that shows up was Judith Curry denier, Judith Curry serial climate disinformer. At that point, I started making my plans to transition 100% to the private sector. She started this weather forecasting company. Now climate alarmists smear her as a climate denier doing it for the money. But she made more money at Georgia Tech. If I was doing this for the money, I would have stayed at Georgia Tech and sucked up my big salary. But that's not who I am. My personal and professional integrity would not allow me to, to play that game. Good for her. It's unfortunate that many university departments now shut down debate and reward alarmism. Curry agrees that climate change is a problem, but she says it's not a crisis. In a few weeks, I'll post our full interview with a more complete discussion about climate and what scientists really agree about. Thanks for watching. To help us make more videos on topics that the mainstream media get wrong, please press that button. Politicians have plans for us. Pass my plan. I alone can fix it. But most of life and the best of life happen when politicians butt out and let us create order as we choose. People think of order like a military march. Everyone dum, 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 marching in order. But a lot of the order that we see wasn't invented by someone or imposed. The Atlas Network's Tom Palmer points out that just as a school of fish needs no leader, most of us, in most of life, just figure things out on our own. Spontaneous order, this Chinese philosopher called it. Economist Friedrich Hayek added that order results not from design, but spontaneously. For example, think about something we rarely think about, how bananas get to your market. They're always enough, so we have a choice, but rarely so many that they go bad. Yet no central planner calculates how many bananas should be grown, who should pick them, when they'll be harvested, how they'll be shipped, and how many to ship to each store. This happens because billions of individuals plan and react on their own. That's spontaneous order. And that's how we get most everything. Food, music, travel. Think about the spontaneous order on a road everyone going all their different directions. Right, look at all these people, 
bold, young, smart, dumb, some super dumb, and yet, even though we're going pretty fast, people rarely smash into each other. You need some rules. Oh, absolutely. Rules like pass on the left. But for the most part, people work this out on our own. Think about language. No one invented language. Yet the world has thousands. Many times, experts tried to create one new one so we could better communicate. There's Volapuk and Esperanto. How many people speak these languages? Almost no one. There's all these attempts. They're not fail. helpful. It is Irisvin Kaya. William Shatner made a movie using Esperanto. It failed too. Esperanto failed because language evolves spontaneously. And it is always superior to top-down systems that rely on the information in one brain. Here are two examples from my town where politicians actually stepped back, allowing spontaneous order. And that made life much better. This is Central Park. Millions mingle here. If the park is beautiful and safe now, only because government let go a little. My city government used to manage the park. And when it did, it looked like this. Graffiti covered monuments. Trash was everywhere. Grass was a wasteland of dust. Then the city agreed to let a private nonprofit manage the park. Without a government order, people came together, giving money and time to turn the park around. Now Central Park is beautiful, and without lots of rules, things work. Leave a donation right here. Musicians thrive on donations, and although there are many, sun, sun, sun. they figure out how to stay out of each other's way. The jazz this group plays is another form of spontaneous order. There's no one demanding you have to play this note. Order emerges as the jazz players are going along in spontaneous form. Likewise, skate dancers spontaneously chose a spot where they meet to skate. How do we make sure they don't bump into each other? Honestly, there's no rules. No one tells them where to go. You just skate with the flow of the music. You gotta bring your skates next time. Go faster, you go slower. Several winters ago, I gave ice skaters directions to try to make skating more orderly. You, turn left, turn right. It didn't improve anyone's skating. I made things worse. I wasn't helping? No. Take the microphone away from that guy. <laughs> but don't you need police on the skating rink? Never! Exactly. Spontaneous order works better. Back to Central Park, where I play volleyball. That's me. There's no volleyball boss. People just show up and play. Pickup basketball is famous for that. They know the rules, otherwise there wouldn't be a game, but who plays and the playing is spontaneous. The Park Conservancy imposes very few rules. No one kicks kids off of rocks. No traffic cops boss people around. Walkers, runners, skateboarders, bikers, pedicabs, and horse-drawn carriages maneuver around each other. There are some rules. Obviously, you must get permission to shoot a movie scene like this. But the police ignore lots of lawbreaking. One dollar water, one dollar water. Unlicensed vendors sell things. And some people illegally drink alcohol. As long as we're not causing trouble, we're good. <laughs> Government that governs less governs better.
Resolution 713. But politicians want to control more things. Resolution 704. My town has a zillion rules. Run a restaurant and want to offer a few outdoor tables? Until recently, the city forced you to get permission from how many people? Nine or 11 agencies to get a sidewalk cafe. Nine or 11 agencies? This restaurant owner can't remember all of them. It was the Department of Buildings, the Fire Department, the Liquor Authority, the City Council, the Controller's Office. On and on and on. You had to get a lawyer, you had to get an architect, but it literally takes you a year. But during COVID, they relaxed the rules. These sheds suddenly appeared. They would have never been allowed. Because they were allowed, streets came alive. They loosened the rules. They did it really quick, which is so unusual for the city. If they hadn't done it. If they hadn't done it, we'd be closed. Without an epidemic, this is simply not allowed. You'd pay such big fines, you'd lose your business. We need that flexibility to allow people to experiment. That freedom to experiment brings the best in life. Medical innovation, spaceships, things we can't even imagine yet. More politicians should learn from Central Park. And I can't believe I'm saying this, New York City's politicians, who during COVID let go a little. Thanks for watching. It's spontaneous order that lets us make these videos because people like you donate. So if you want to help us make more, click that button and subscribe to make sure you get our next one. There are dangerous hate groups in America who will warn us about them. The media tell us. The Southern Poverty Law Center. The Southern Poverty Law Center. The Southern Poverty Law Center, based in that building in Alabama, calls itself the premier group monitoring hate groups and other extremists. Looking at their map of hate groups, you'd think hate groups were everywhere. I once believed what the center said. Well-meaning people still do. Apple gave them a million dollars. But what donors don't know is that today, the center smears good people. The presence of radical Islam. This Somalian woman speaks out against radical Islam. For that, the center put her on its list. Join the fight against hate and bigotry. Visit splcenter.org. I do think that we have a problem with hate in this country. We put about 10 of these major hate groups out of business. When I first investigated the center, its leaders wouldn't talk to me. So liberal commentator Nomiki Kuntz defended them. They have a history, a long history of fighting against extremists like the KKK. History, yes, but they labeled skeptical Muslims like Ayan Hirsi Ali as haters. If you have a horrible experience with religion, that's one thing. It's another thing to use those experiences as ammunition against others who are practicing their religion peacefully. But they're just speaking, criticizing it. Of course she has the right to free speech, as does the Southern Poverty Law Center has a right to push back. We can stand together against hate. The center also calls the Family Research Council a hate group. The definition of a marriage is what it's been for 5,000 years. It's the union of a man and a woman. I often disagree with the council myself, but do they belong on this hate map? When they don't agree with you politically, they're going to list you as a hater. You are haters. You hate gays. No, I don't hate gay people, and, and, uh, and I know gay people, and I have worked with gay people. But once you become a hate group, you're a target. 
Developing now, word of a shooting at the Family Research Council there in Washington. One man was so enraged by what the Southern Poverty Law Center said about the Family Research Council, he went to their headquarters to kill people. A man shot a security guard in the arm. Fortunately, that guard stopped the man before he could shoot anyone else. He told the judge that he was there to kill as many of us as possible because we were a hate group. The center also smears the Ruth Institute a Christian group that believes gays should not have an equal right to adopt children. They're not haters. I like gay people. I have no problem with gay people. That's not the issue. The issue is what are we doing with kids and the definition of who counts as a parent. There could be cases where the best person for a particular child would be their Uncle Harry and his boyfriend. You know, that could be. But we owe it to the children to give them the best we can, which generally is a married mother and father. So you're a hater. <laughs> When the Southern Poverty Law Center put the Ruth Institute on its hate map, the Institute's bank cut them off. We've determined that you're an organization that promotes hate, violence, harassment, and so therefore we're not doing business with you. The Ruth Institute and the Family Research Council are still on the hate list. There's no appeal, and I sure don't know how you get off. I suspect the center keeps its hate list long because that brings in lots of money. Morris Dees' salary is more than my entire annual budget. So yeah. Whatever they're doing, it pays. It sure does. Years ago, Harper's Magazine reported that the center was the richest civil rights group in America, one that spends most of its time and money trying to make more money. They promised to stop fundraising once their endowment reached $55 million. But when they reached $55 million, they changed that to $100 million, saying that would allow them to cease costly fundraising. But when they reached $100 million, they didn't stop. They collected $200 million, then $400 million. Now they've got $730 million. Yet they still smear people to raise more money. Much of which is in offshore accounts, Caymans and places like that. How do you know? Oh, we look at their 990s. And it says Cayman Islands? Yeah. Now the Southern Poverty Law Center calls groups that simply oppose sexually explicit content in schools anti-government extremists. Moms for Liberty and Moms for America are on the hate map because they dare do things like seek school board seats to try to stop districts from disregarding opinions of parents. Give me a break. The center puts them on the hate map, but not Antifa, the hate group that beats up people on the right. The center's become a hate group itself. It's now a left-wing, money-grabbing slander machine. Thanks for watching. We don't have a $700 million endowment, or frankly, any endowment. So if you'd like to help us make more videos, click that button. People who try to start charter schools often say, oh, the bureaucrats make it so hard. They put up all these obstacles. and." That's why there aren't enough charters yet to have a real market. Except in one town, most kids now attend charters. How'd that happen? Hurricane Katrina on track to make a direct hit on the low-lying city of New Orleans. It happened because of a hurricane. It's in all eyes about New Orleans, not only a famous city, but below sea levels. This entire area will be underwater. Mother Nature is in charge, and now Mother Nature 
has dealt one horrific blow. When Katrina flooded New Orleans, it didn't just destroy much of the city. It also destroyed the school system. Some school reformers thought maybe that's what needed to happen. It was probably one of the worst school districts in the country. It was a horror. Before Katrina, our schools, I mean, they were just failing. The choice was, do you rebuild what was there or do you build something entirely new? Louisiana built something new. They made it easy for people to open charters. You tell the state, here's my plan. Ben Markovitz started a charter school called Psy Academy. We have complete control over the quality of our instruction. When he started his school in 2008, he was the only employee. He drove his car around New Orleans until 3 in the morning, putting up signs advertising his school. And you see this, this number right here, that was my cell phone. He had to advertise because students had to choose to go there. They didn't just get sent here because they lived nearby. We were putting these up everywhere. He even went to people's houses to recruit. Living in New Orleans, we've never had that. Her son Reggie goes to Psy Academy. He came out and he interviewed, he talked to me, then he talked to Reggie and he was explaining to him about the hours and academics and stuff. When the school opened, only a third of the students were proficient on state tests. I know half of them didn't know how to read. Now, Psy Academy's test results are among the best in the city, even though the school itself is just a bunch of trailers. There's a plan in my mind to have a permanent building, but if you walk into a school and the first thing they tell you are complaints about their facilities, they're probably not focused on the right things. How did Psy Academy do it? Well, teachers have to perform because the principal can fire at will. Yeah, yeah, uh, we have at-will contracts at the school. Sharon Clark runs another New Orleans charter, and she too fires the weakest teachers. I call it freeing up a person's future. The charter law also allows parents to fire a school. If they don't like this school, they can send their kid to another. Sharon needs to work hard because she worries about losing her charter. Yes, every day, sir. Good morning, class of 2013! Good morning, That competition drives schools to try different things, like this morning ritual at Psy Academy. Who are you? I'm Skyler. My education is my future, and the future is now. Are you here? This seems a little cult-like, and some kids didn't take it seriously. But something worked. Oh, it is a major difference. Since he's been here, he's become more responsible, uh, thinking. Even though I didn't like the school at first, as I went to school, I started to want to go to college more because I saw how important it was. Now Reggie's mother is getting ready to start college, so Reggie tutored her for a test using skills he learned at Psy. This is how it should have been before Katrina. So this charter's grown from one employee into another school that's so popular it holds a lottery to decide who gets in. We are going to have a waiting list of about 200 students long. This is our first uh, choice by far. Then, As you saw in Harlem, nervous kids and relatives sit anxiously, hoping their name will be called. Some go away happy. Most do not. It just goes to show that like, this kind of school is badly, badly needed in the city. And this kind of education is exactly what we need to be offering to every single kid. Today, most kids in New Orleans attend charter schools, and test scores across the city are better. Many of the greatest cities in the world have been 
reborn amid crises. The Chicago fire resulted in a greater Chicago being built. The San Francisco earthquake resulted in a much more dynamic, safer city emerging. The fire of London resulted in a, in a much greater capital emerging. Well, you know, people in New Orleans are rebuilding the city for the better. The school choice movement is here to stay. It will never go back. Suppose you're a billionaire, actually a multi-billionaire, but then a repressive regime takes control of your country and threatens you with jail. What would you do? You can go anywhere in the world and live in luxury, or you can stay and go to jail. Jimmy Lai chose jail. This documentary covers his imprisonment and lets him explain why he chose jail. Lai grew up in China during Mao's Cultural Revolution. My mother was a labor camp. We were just five or six, and we were managing ourselves without an adult in the household. When I was eight and nine, I worked in the railway station carrying people's baggage. There, he learned that just offshore on a little British-controlled island called Hong Kong, people were less poor. So he went there. It wasn't easy. I was put in the bottom of the fishing trunk together with like maybe 100, maybe 80, and everybody vomiting. But he got to Hong Kong. The first day I went to, I went for breakfast, and I never saw so many things for breakfast. And I was, I was, I was so moved, I was crying. He got a job in a sweatshop. We had to wake up like before seven, and then we work until like 10 o'clock. But it was a very happy time. It was a time that I know I had a future. The chance for a better future makes such a difference. Hong Kong sweats with commerce and opportunity. It didn't matter if you had a college degree. Nobody cared. As long as you wanted to work, you had a good idea, you could learn, you could make it in Hong Kong. Lai eventually saved enough to start a clothing business. I start a very small factory, and eventually, we became one of the biggest sweater factory in Hong Kong. Lai was able to do that because while Hong Kong's police enforced law and order, the British rulers otherwise left people alone. That allowed people to prosper. British gave us all the institutions of freedom, the rule of law, the human right, the free speech, the free market. Lai understood that those things are key to prosperity because he discovered this book, the Road to Serfdom. The book changed my life. Here, Frederick Hayek describes spontaneous order, the idea that just as a flock of birds doesn't need a leader, we humans create order out of nothing if left free. That has created the best in the world. And that's very enlightening for me. I assumed that the communist Chinese, seeing the success of Hong Kong, would leave the island alone. After all, even the communists had embraced some capitalism. I thought China is going to be changed. China is going to be like Western country that you know I've been to, and, and I was very excited. But then came Tiananmen Square. People were gathering and protesting, and then the tanks rolled in. The Tiananmen Square massacre inspired Lai to start a media business. That I deliver information, which is choice, and choice is freedom. Lai covered Chinese government abuses when other media wouldn't. Everybody was so 
taken out, so scared that they went into self-censorship to avoid offending the communists. So many businessmen keep quiet because they have investments in China. So Hong Kong people always have a soft spot for a guy willing to speak out as Jimmy does. But then the communists declared it illegal for Hong Kongers to criticize them. It's impossible for media to survive because whatever we say can be sedition. Being convicted of sedition would mean jail time, three years to life. But Lai kept his paper open anyway. If we just surrender, we will lose the rule of law, we will lose the freedom, we will lose everything. Hong Kong did lose its freedom. We can see that the city itself is dying. Still, Lai refused to leave. I came here without anything. Anything I have is this place. I own freedom, my life. You have every opportunity, as Jimmy Lai did, to leave Hong Kong, to go to Taiwan, to go to America, but he's staying. I have long determined not to be frightened by fear. Don't think about the consequences. Do what is right. For publishing the truth, he was arrested. He was shackled and perp-walked through his own offices. China sentenced Lai to five years in jail and said they may add more years. So does Lai wish he'd moved his businesses and himself out of Hong Kong? He says no. It would be so boring just being a businessman. I want to make my life more meaningful and interesting, and that, that's why I got into the trouble I got into today, and I'm happy to have it. Happy to have it. Jimmy Lai's a hero. The world would be a better place if there were more people like him. See you again. Thank you. Thanks yes, a lot. Yes. Thank you. To learn more about Jimmy Lai, you can watch the whole documentary at freejimmylai.com.